So as my wife mentioned just a moment ago, starting a new series today, and um, this one is called A House in Order. And um, the purpose behind this is I've been wanting for some time to kind of just teach on just the family. So it's a short, it's a short series. We're doing an introductory message today, which is about God's structure, God's way of laying things out. And uh, then we're going to do three messages in this series outside of it, which, is, which are these. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, honor your husbands. And children, obey your parents. And so we have set up, strategically set up, a family worship for the week that we're going to do children, obey your parents. And they'll be trapped in here. And they'll have to listen to the whole thing. So bring your kids, you know, that Sunday. Don't miss but um, it's going to be good. It's going to be a good series. We'll trap some husbands, trap some wives. It'll be fantastic, y'all. I'm have to have instructed the the deacons to lock all the doors to the sanctuary once the message starts. So, yeah. So it's it's controversial because our culture is fighting against the truth to talk about how the family is ordered and how it's structured by God. It's controversial. But um, so so you know, forward looking after this series, we're going to do a series which is about the church upholding the truth in the culture. Because that's our role. And the Bible calls the church the pillar and the support of the truth, which means that if truth is held up, it's because the church is holding it up. And if, church, if truth is collapsing in the culture, it's because the church is compromising. The church is letting it collapse. We're giving way. It's like people, there's people out there who want to control all the language they want to redefine all of our terms, and it happens even, and so it's the, even in what they call the liberalization of theology, where we take our tradition, our well-understood and established theological terms and say, well, now this means this. And so um, God, is, God lives in a realm where, of, where he is unchanging, right? God, his nature is, is unchanging. And so the truth that flows from God is unchanging. The applications of it change as times change, but the truth of it never changes, And so we're going to talk about that in more detail. And in truth, with everything going on politically and the election stuff, this insanity that we're in the middle of right now, I wanted to jump right into that series. I wanted to kind of cut cut past this one and go right to that one. But I just really felt like um, the better way was to let let, let, let Sundays be a refuge from political insanity. And let's spend some time on some things that are so important they can't afford to be missed. So if you're okay with that... That's the way we're going to go. This has been in my heart for some time, and it seemed like a good time to do it. So um, let's pray together. Lord, we give you this day, Lord. Every day is yours, but we call this day the Lord's day, a day set apart to come together and to worship and to glorify and honor the name of Jesus together, to grow in the truth together, to learn, Lord, to be inspired and challenged, to be stirred up by the Holy Spirit and to be commissioned by God and, to, and sent out into the world. And uh, I just want to pray that today, Lord, this word would be taken by you. Your word says uh, that, this, that the word of God is the sword of the Spirit. And I pray that the Spirit of God would take up his sword this morning in the church and would be at work in each of our hearts, Lord, as only you can. And I pray that you would show us your ways, Lord. Show us your ways. Teach them to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So call this message God's remedy for chaos. Let's start in Genesis. We'll go back to the beginning. It's a good place to start. And all of this, um, to show the primary importance of it, was effectively the first thing God did 
was to, it was to look into void. It wasn't chaos because there was nothing there, but it was void, it was formless, and to begin to bring order. So let's look at Genesis verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. We'll look at 1 through 3. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving or hovering over the surface of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And we're not going to go through the whole creation account, but this is the beginning of the creation of God. So this is actually another beautiful place where you can see the Trinity, where you can see the person, the personhood of God in place. So you have the Father, you've got the Holy, who's, who's, who's looking over this void, and then you've got the Spirit, and the Spirit's hovering. It's like waiting for commands. Just tell me what to do. I'm just hovering. I'm just waiting over this void, and the Spirit's looking at all this, and here's the Father. But where's the Son? Well, the Son is the Word of God. Right? The Son is the Word. John calls him the Word. So we have, he says, let there be light. And Jesus was in the creation, and the power of God was flowing into creation through the Word of life. And so God looks at something that's formless and void, structureless, dark, and says, I'm not going to leave that like that. I've got, and even if, and it's not like God was just looking for a void to fill, He had a very specific plan. He had a desire in his heart, an intention that he was going to make something. And he was going to make something, and he was going to make it just the way he wanted it. And he was going to set it up in such a way that, that as long as the, as the order that he created held, there would be peace for all involved in this beautiful new creation. So this is something we're learning about God, that this is part of the nature and the character of God, which never changes and it tells us, this is, I want to show you this verse, because this is something that uh, we could spend some time on if we wanted to. But this is essentially what I want you to know about God as we go into this together, as God, showing you how God brings a remedy to our chaos, how he cures our chaos. 1 Corinthians 14.33, Paul, talking about the churches, says, For God is not a God of confusion, or disorder is that word, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. And in that case, he's talking to the churches. He's talking about you guys are all using your spiritual gifts, but things are spinning out of control. Like everybody's fighting for a chance to use their gift and all this stuff. you know. And, and so he said, it's turning into chaos. And he said, God's not a God like that. He wants you to use your gift in an orderly way so that people can be edified. God has a, has a purpose in everything. But in this moment, he's showing us something that we need to know and understand about God, that God is not a God of confusion and chaos. Where you see confusion and chaos, there's, there's a force at work other than the, the power of God. But he's a God of peace. And so where you see real peace abiding, you can know that God is there. So I want to show you what these words are interesting words, and I'll do my best to pronounce them. I won't make you any promises. But the word confusion is a Greek word. Are you ready for this? Akatastasias. It's in that neighborhood, okay? Akatastasias. But listen to what this means. Instability, a state of disorder, disturbance, confusion. God is not a God of instability. 
God is not a God of this state of disorder. God is not a God of disturbance and confusion. I know you guys are already thinking politics. I'm not going to open that up just now. But God is not the God who's causing that, is he? But look at what God is. Look at this word. You know, you always wonder. Peace is the Greek word Irene, which is where we get the name Irene. You know anybody named Irene? It's not as much used these days. My grandma used to always say, good night, Irene. It was a phrase that she used all the time. But it kind of makes sense um, if you think about it, what it is. Listen to what Irene is. This is what God is a God of. Are you ready for this? This is what this word means. A state of national tranquility. When God's way and God's will is being done in his power and his strength, the nation goes to peace. Exemption from the rage and havoc of war. God is a God who wants to stop the wars, stop the fighting. Peace between individuals, that's that word. God is a God of tranquility of soul. And listen to what else it means. That blessed state of devout and upright men after death. God is the God of your eternal peace. He's the God of that peace that will abide with you forever. He's not the God of all this chaos and disorder. He's the God who wants to give you a perfect peace. So here's where we're going with this. God sows his order in the earth because it leads to to his peace. Chaos exists everywhere that men cast off God's order. Chaos. Fighting. All the things God is not a God of, those are the things that break out wherever people cast off God's order. And we see this happen in nations. Proverbs 14.34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Any people. It doesn't matter who you are, where you are, what your nation's history is. If you embrace the righteousness of God, it will begin to exalt your nation and lift it up. This is what the Bible says. I'm not adding to this, am I? That's what it says. Your nation will be exalted, but sin is a disgrace. What does that mean? Your nation will be brought low. Sin will bring shame because sin will sow this chaos. Sin will sow chaos in their culture. So wherever God shows up, he starts to bring order. He looks at the void and he says, well, I'm going to make something here. And he makes the world and all of its perfect order and creation. If you guys have studied anything that has to do with nature and biology and just the flow and the processes of nature, you look at it and you go, how could anybody question whether or not God or there are, you know, know, even if you don't believe in God, that an intelligence made all of this. How could anyone question it? And we have an account. It's just too simple for most people to accept. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, there's the answer. It can't be that simple, right? There had to be an explosion. That's how you know guys came up with that idea. You know, they blew something up. I'm serious. But God created everything, and it's beautiful and perfect. And you see all the flow of everything, how it all works together, how it all cooperates with, its, with itself, and each piece works together. The systems of your body, every piece has a role to play, right? And if any part stops doing what it's supposed to do, it's kind of a big deal because it all has to cooperate together. It's perfect. It's made by God. 
So God shows up and he sees Israel and they're kind of just going around in a big group. And so he splits them up by tribes and he orders them uh, into armies. That's what happens in the book of Numbers. If you wonder why there's all that counting that happens in the book of Numbers, it's because he's preparing them for war. They're about to go into a nation that they're going to have to sort of take. It's theirs, but they've got to rise up and possess it. So he, or, he organizes them into armies. And then after they've taken the land, he splits the land up by lot for inheritances for the people. So he doesn't leave that to chaos. He says, no, 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 no. You cast lots and I'll be in the lot. And I'll make sure everybody gets a piece that's fitting for the size of their nation. God wanted to bring peace. He wanted to, so he splits all that up into an organized form. Nations and governments forming on the face of the earth and structures like that. And even in the formation of the church, God said, no, 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 here's how that's all going to work. We've got people who fill different roles and do different things and different gifts and combinations of gifts. And then there's authority structures that keep everything in place. Because that's what brings peace in the earth. So let's go to Genesis 126. Because we're talking about the order that God has made in the family. If you didn't know this, families are the backbone of society. The family is what the society is built upon. It's not individuals. There are individuals within society, but the society is built on families. And healthy families make healthy societies. And so it's not insignificant that our country was founded with what to call Judeo-Christian values. Because that means we have a much better shot, and not a much better shot, righteousness exalts a nation. If everybody embraces the, the family and the way that God has designed the family, then the nation will begin to be exalted. But if the nation throws off, if we, if we in the church or out in the culture, if we in the church succumb to the pressure to not structure our families and our homes the way the Bible says that they should be structured, um, and we embrace all of the terminology that the world gives us and under the fear of, you know, whatever, of seeming like this or seeming like that, um, if we shun it, then we actually... Ten, we actually feed into the decline of our culture. And in God's eyes, we are responsible for it. Because we're the ones who have to hold the line. Well, they won't like me. Well, Jesus said, they hated me. They'll hate you also for my name's sake. He said that. And so we're like, well, we just, you know, we have this real, we haven't had to have a lot of suffering. Like we figured out, Jesus said this, it's so un unpopular, but he said, and he said, woe unto you when all men speak well of you. He said, because that's the way they treated the false prophets. What does the false prophet do? Compromise the truth or dilute the truth or change it in some way. So if everybody thinks you're great, it's probably because you're not taking a stand for truth in some regard. And I'm not saying that people should hate you because you're a mean and, and mean-spirited person or disagreeable. And Peter addressed that. You know, the Bible addresses everything. There's just nothing it doesn't address. Peter said, if you suffer as a Christian, you should do it with peace and with joy. He said, but if you suffer for being a sinner, well, that's not good. So don't suffer for the wrong reasons. Suffer for the right reasons. But societies built on families, families are built on, that are built on God's word will lead to the prosperity of a society and the exaltation of a nation. Kind of a big deal, right? Kind of a big deal. So God said in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And he's already thinking 
about the flow and the process and the organization of things. Let them rule over the fish of the sea. There's an order, there's a hierarchy. Over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So that means from the, from the animal you've got the most use for to the one that you have absolutely no use for, mankind are the rulers over all of that and over all the earth. So God created man in his own image, though. So God didn't just make man an arbitrary person who's kind of out there, whatever. He said, no, God, you know, we, God, we don't know what God, like, what does he look like? It's like the, no one's ever seen God is what the Bible says. And yet in some way, he made man after his own likeness. Is that not incredible? And so in that sense, we're children of God. There's, one, there's places in the Bible where it refers to all creation as the children of God. And it's not saying they're all saved. It's saying they're all made in his likeness. And then he specifies with clarity, male and female, he created them. How many kinds of people are there? How many genders? <laughs> Two. Two. They're recognizing 80 now. I'm not, I wish I was kidding. They're recognizing 80. I'm not saying that so you can treat someone with spite. You understand that, don't you? It's not, not saying that so you can make someone shame. Those people need every person. Sin manifests in a thousand different ways, and it, and it calls for mercy. It calls for the church to demonstrate compassion and kindness. How can we judge when we've been forgiven so much? And you say, well, I, at least I'd never be like that. You know nothing about your own heart. You could be anything if you followed sin to its logical conclusion. You could be anything. And you're not because of the grace of God. But there's two. Church, got to hold that line, okay? You don't have to be nasty about it. You don't have to be unkind, but you hold that line. When God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Here's my plan for you. Fill the earth. Fill it with people. And subdue it. That means it belongs to you. Use it for every purpose that it's beneficial for mankind. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So mankind are the little lords of creation. God said, here's the world, take it. And use it in every way that it's most beneficial to mankind. So you hear a different kind of message coming in from people who don't believe in God and don't hold to... How, how, many, how many popular ideas have we already contradicted just reading the Bible? Overpopulation is leading to global warming. Like, and look, I don't... Climate trends, whatever, I'm not getting into all that stuff. But, but, but the idea that it's actually become a justification for abortion... And it's become a justification also for, which is the next logical conclusion, um, getting rid of the elderly when they no longer contribute to society. Because overpopulation is is dangerous for all mankind. We really got to think about these things. And God said, fill it up. To the farthest corners of the earth, fill it up. You know, and you're saying to yourself, well, have these people ever been in an airplane? You know what I mean? And looked out the window. They say that every single person in the entire world could have a neighborhood-sized lot in Texas. 
Just in Texas, a neighborhood-sized lot, every human being alive on the face of the earth right now could have their own neighborhood-sized lot just in Texas. So we're doing okay, but we need to do better at filling up the earth. Christians, I just, since we're in the family thing, Christians need to have kids if you can. And if you can't, you should adopt. Because even if your bloodline is not, in a physical sense, is not being passed along, the ideology and the faith that you hold passes along, which in many ways is more important than your name going to somebody else. Is it not? So, you know, if, if let's say, the way that Islam transforms societies, because they do it strategically, is they go in and have eight kids. And Christians are like, well, 1.3. 1.3 ought to cover it. You know, that's kind of the average, whatever the statistic is. And it's, and it's funny until you look at social decline. Because societies decline if there's not a minimum child birth rate. Because people are dying faster than they're being born. But who is having kids? And what's their ideology? So Christians can actually change the world by having kids. And training them up in the ways of God. I mean, so it's fundamental. This is why God said these things are not arbitrary. Everything God says has a purpose. So he says, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over. Do you want to go catch some fish and eat them? Go catch them and eat them. Not now. Wait till the message is over. But you can do that. God also invented hunting. I'm not going to get into that right now. He said, I'm going to put the, after the flood, he said, I'm going to put the fear of these animals on you. Because they weren't afraid of Adam and Eve. They walked around them. But God was like, no, you know what will make it really fun is if they run away. And God invented hunting at that moment. And every man in the room said, and some of you ladies, amen. Genesis two fifteen through 23. So then the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. So God's still working out his plan. Now there's some work to do. You don't want to just be idly, nothing to do. That's not, there's no fun in that, right? There's no satisfaction in that. So let's get him something to do. We already did a message a while back on meaningful work. Here's some meaningful work. Cultivate and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. So think about this now, verse 16. So God has had this amazing and beautiful relationship with man. The Bible says he walked with him in the cool of the day. You know, so God and man have this interactive relationship where man knows he's creation. He knows that God is God. And, and yet God walks with him. God wants to have a relationship with him. God wants to talk with him, and, and he wants to have real interactions and hear what he cares about and talk about the things going on in his heart. And then God shows up and just all of a sudden becomes such a killjoy. God shows up and says, here's the garden. Adam goes, oh, this is gorgeous. Oh, this is going to be great. And God said, but that tree over there, if you eat from it, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> what's, this, what's God doing? He's establishing his lordship. If I give you a command, even if it's just one command, you had better keep it. You'd better keep it. And it's serious. It's deadly serious. It's life and death. Order, structure. I am God. And even though we walk together, even though we go on walks together, don't forget that I'm God. And that you're my creation. So here's one command to keep. And the Lord God said, verse 18, 
It is not good, he looks at him and says, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Look at the compassion of God's heart. He gives him this garden. And the Bible even tells us in part why he did it. If we keep reading verse 19, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Because at this point, there's just the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. So God is like loving this. Bring him this one. What's he going to call it? Bring him this one. What's he going to call that? A giraffe. I've never heard of such a thing. Okay, giraffe. Well, God's heard of all sort of things, but he's just watching it and he loves it. He loves to watch it happen. But while he's watching the man name all the animals, he sees something unfolding in the man's heart. This is in verse 20. The man gave names to all the cattle, the birds of the sky, the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So all the time he's watching these male, female animals pairing off and, and he's naming them. and He's watching them go off and all this. And, he's, and in his heart, there's this sadness. But, that, but I, don't have a, I don't have one. I don't have a matched pair. I don't have someone like that in my life. And he sees that sadness setting in on the man's heart. And he knows it's not best for him. He said it's not good for him to be alone. So in verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, Whoa, man. (laughs) This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So she shall be called, whoa, man, because she was taken out of man. And the man said, it's good. (laughs) Yeah, we got a whoop. (laughs) So man was quite pleased with with, with God's will in this moment. So... God has satisfied, he's got this need, right? He's not good for him to be alone. He needs, some, he needs someone who can come alongside him as a companion in everything. Work together, live life together, have children together, and be together as, the greatest, as a gift to one another as the greatest joy the other person could have. But why, have you ever asked yourself this question, why, if God made the man out of dust, did he make the woman from the man's rib? By the way, that's actual history. Do you know that's history? It's not, a, it's not a figure of speech. It's not, you know, it's not, it's certainly not uh, mythology. It's history. Only children get into the kingdom of heaven. Didn't Jesus say that? You've got to be simple. It is simple. God said it. I believe it. You know, that's simplicity. But you look at it and you go, why? So God made man in his image. And then he takes the man and he said, he could have just made a woman. But he said, no, I'm going to make her out of the man. Because in the hierarchy, in the order of things, the man will be submitted to me, the woman will be submitted to her husband. Not to all men but to her husband. That's important, right? Because there are men who think if she's a woman, she should be subject to me. And it's like, whatever. Women say amen, right? Whatever. 
where, where are the ladies at the church, you know? But, but her husband, right, in this perfect order. And, and subject is not the right word, if you understand what the Bible teaches. Doesn't it say a helper suitable, a companion? If I tell my companion, by the way, I'm in charge around here. <laughs> so much for the companionship, right? I might be stuck with you, but we're not going to be friends. You know, but the friendship of relationship is what makes it vital and happy and alive. We like to be together. Isn't that right? And it's beautiful when it functions that way. But it's very ugly when people begin to contend with one another for authority and to fight, which is what sin does, and we're getting to that. So 1 Corinthians 11.3, Paul summarizes it like this. I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. Man submitted to Christ. The man is the head of a woman. Do you see that? A woman, his wife, not all women. Right? Keep it straight. The head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. So there's an order to things. God made it this way. And you abide within this order, then there's health and there's peace and there's life. And you fly in the face of this order and guess what? Chaos. Destruction and war, disorder and fighting. So order was established. So the peace of God was prevailing in the everyday life of his creatures. And that's what God delights in. He's a God of peace. Oh, I love peace. Look, he's, look, at the, look they're not fighting right now. It's beautiful. He loves peace. But the devil hates God's children and desires our destruction, and here's his tactic. Don't be unaware of his schemes. He gets at us by tearing at the fibers of God's order. And the devil's lie is always, you need to assert your right. You need to push through and, be, and, and, and look, look at that weakling that God gave you for a husband, ladies. You got to get up and you push your way to the front and just start leading this thing before it all falls apart. And yet a helper suitable in a perfect situation would, would acknowledge the husband's weakness. And in an even more perfect situation, the man would also acknowledge where he's falling short. And then she would say, I don't want to run this. I want to support you. And I want to help you grow as a leader. Any man standing here today who's got a godly wife, a woman given to him by God, knows he is only what he is because of her. Because she was given to him by God. She, in so many ways, she stood there and urged him and encouraged him. And she stumbled sometimes and called him some names. And later she repented, said she was sorry. She was in the moment. She meant it. And she wishes he wasn't that way. I'm just being, amen. I'm just, thinking, I'm just being honest, right? Because this is the way, it's not this perfect, like, you know, we used to get these books and it was like from like a Mennonite publication and, and, and everything was so dream world fake. It was like, oh, come on now. And, but then you read the articles written in to the, to the news and they're all called contentment, like every one of them is about a woman choosing contentment. In other words, I'm miserable and unhappy, but I'm choosing contentment. And it was the saddest thing in the world to see because if you see the picture of Christ washing his bride in water with the word, right? He presents to himself a radiant bride, 
A man whose wife is beaten down and downtrodden is wrong. He's in sin in some way or another in the way that he's tending to his wife or not tending to his wife or using even sometimes the word of God to keep her down. He's supposed to be washing for himself a radiant bride. Why are you afraid of her? It's one of the questions that men need to be asked. Why are you afraid of her? One time the Lord spoke to me. I'm sure I'll share this again when we go farther down. But, but like my pastor told me when my wife and I were engaged, he goes, Joel, my pastor said, Joel, he said, uh, Angela is a strong woman. He said, and you're going to have to get strong yourself. He said, if you're going to have a healthy, healthy marriage. And I said, you know, we're just in love and all this. And I'm just like, yeah, thanks, pastor. That's a nice thing to say. But um, one time I was just praying about something. I don't remember exactly what it was, some, some contention, point of contention we'd had in our life. And it was like, I was, my attitude or thinking was something like, Lord, I just, why can't she just go along with the plan? You know what I mean? Like, why can't she just go along? And my wife is, listen, not contentious. She said, please don't hear that. It's hard for me to share personal stories. I don't want you to take away anything I'm not trying to say. She's, she's the most supportive, godly, and even submissive, biblically, uh, woman that I've met, and her personality is very strong. So it's an incredible thing to see that when you see it. But um, in my heart, the Spirit of the Lord said, if she's to be your support, why would you want her to be weak? And it became clear to me, clear in a moment. She's helping to hold me up. Why would I want her to be weak? I've got to be a better leader, and that's the whole point. And so there's this growth, and it's painful. A lot of it, we work through stuff, but we all come out better for it when everything's in its place. But the devil wants to tear at the fibers of your family. He wants to tear at God's order. He wants to break it down and to destroy it because he knows what he can do if he can get you to fight with each other rather than to work together toward a common goal. So in Genesis 3, verse 6, it says, When the woman saw the tree was good for food, and notice this, that, the, that when Satan wanted to tear everything apart, he went to the man's wife. You think about it. The law was given by God to Adam. And when Satan wanted to bring about deception, he didn't go to the one the law had come to. He went to his wife. And the husband had hopefully, we will hope, given the law to his wife, passed it along and said, we can't eat from that tree. You know, that's the one rule. But Satan comes into somebody who didn't receive the law directly and says, hey, are you really sure about that? See, it's easier to challenge if it didn't come directly to you, right? That it was a delight to the eyes, the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate. And she turns around, she gives it to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were open. It says, then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves. They used to go out to God and walk with him. And now they hide themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? 
Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, Technically, uh, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God turns to the woman, What is this you've done? And she said, uh, Technically, uh, the, servant, the serpent deceived me and I ate. That's, that's what we call blame shifting. Right? Just keep passing it down the line. So what had happened? All of this, the one law that God had given, Satan comes in to tear at the fiber of the family. He comes to the wife. He says, are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? And she's over here going, well, I guess I'm not sure. And that kind of sounds good. And she gives in to this temptation. And then we don't know how close exactly in proximity Adam was to this whole situation, but it says she turned to her husband with her and gave it to him, and he ate. So the husband either was complicit and said nothing, or he just kind of has shown up in this moment. And either way, she hands him the fruit, and he knows where it came from. And she says, yeah, but it's good for food and desirable to make one wise. And he said, well, it's worth a try. And when he ate it, creation fell. Think about that. It says, when he ate, creation fell. Why? Because the law had been given to him. He was the one ultimately accountable. And when he violated the law, the creation fell. They fell into sin and plunged all of us into a path now where sin is in our nature and has to be overcome by the Spirit of Christ. Chaos. Chaos ensued. God's beautiful peace was gone. Self-preservation became man's whole law, and lies and deceit prevailed. That's what happened. Did you know, and there is such a thing as the Satanic Bible. Don't ever read it. But in the Satanic Bible, it has an inscription. And, and, it's, and, this is, and it says, do what thou wilt. In other words, do whatever you want. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. That's what it says. And that is Satan's message to all of mankind today. You look out for you, and whatever's best for you, you do it, and that's the only rule. And what does it bring about? Destruction and chaos and disorder, and it's every man for himself. When it's no one considering how their actions impact others, but you get into something like a family, and here it's just husband and wife. We don't even have kids in the picture yet. But if everybody goes off and living for themselves, then this chaos begins to prevail. Sin had plunged men and women into a struggle for superiority. The Bible says this when, when, when God is, is passing out what we call it's the curse. You know, he's, he's saying this is, the, this, is the, this is the penalty for the things that you've done. And he says to the woman, he says, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. And he's not saying this is the way that I want it to be. The way that the words, if you break those words down, what it means is you're going to seek to you're going to seek superiority or over or dominance over your husband, but he is going to be seeking superiority and dominance over you. And those two polar opposites are what we call in our culture feminism and chauvinism. He's saying both your natures have now been corrupted. So that the woman is going to want not just equality, superiority. 
And the man is going to want not just his proper place in the home, but he's going to actually want to be dominant. And both of those, feminism and chauvinism, both of them are completely destructive. Completely destructive. Because it's never really about equality, is it? Feminism is not about equality. It's about superiority and dominance. It's not about equal rights. It's about special privileges and protections, in many cases that are not appropriate. And chauvinism is the same thing. It's, the, it's where it goes from a woman and I, a woman who submits to, her, to me, her husband, to like all women should do whatever I say. And this idea that a woman is lesser than a man, when the Bible says, this, says specifically that we are co-heirs of the gift of life. And that a man's to bend over backwards to lay his life down to make sure that she is thriving. That's what the Bible says. We're going to get into that in weeks to come. So the, it, there is never this thing of, never meant to be this in God's perfect way. There was never meant to be this striving and competing for authority and dominance. But it was meant to be this collaboration of friends who love each other, who are building a life and working out the will of God together. And when it's that way, it's glorious. But when sin comes in, it tears at the fibers of God's peace. So what was God to do? God does what he does best. He begins to restore order. And in the most unlikely place, in the midst of the curses, the gospel message is brought through. Somebody say hallelujah. And he says, serpent, guess where I'm putting you? In the dust. You will be under their feet forever. And he says, I'm going to put enmity, hatred, in the hearts of the woman's seed, the children that are going to come from her. I'm going to put hatred in their heart for you. And you're going to rise up. Oh, you're going to rise up. We know you are. And you're going to strike at him. But the best you'll be able to do is a strike on his heel. And when he feels that strike on his heel, which was the cross of Jesus, the attempt to kill that was unsuccessful, he's going to turn around and strike and crush your head. And that is the end of the power of Satan and his destructive, his destructive influence in, in tearing apart God's order. Satan loves chaos and fighting and disorder. God loves peace. And he mapped it out. He built it into his plan. In the middle of a curse, God couldn't help but give good news because that's the kind of heart that he has toward his people. Through the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ the righteous, the serpent and his lies would be defeated. In Christ, men and women and their children return to the order of Eden and take authority over Satan. So as I said before, we're going to do three messages in weeks to come. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, honor your husbands. And children, obey your parents. We're going to lay out what these relationships look like. How do we do it God's way? How do we build it out in a way that's beautiful? How do we build, it, build our families in a way that glorifies and honors God? What is the culture telling us that's, all, that's Satan's lie, tearing at the fiber of our families? And what does God's word tell us that we need to hold to without flinching and without failing? And how can it all come together and be beautiful and glorifying to God? 
Let's stand up together. I want you to open up your hearts to the Lord in this time. I've laid all this out for you um, so that we can spread our hearts out before the Lord. Because we all need to be touched by grace. We all do. In some way or another, maybe some of us are having significant issues in our own families right now. Struggles with kids, struggles with, with, with rebellion or trouble there, fighting within our marriages that we can't resolve. There's, there's things happening that we just can't tell exactly. Sometimes we run into walls and we can't even name the wall. We can't even say what it is, but it's always there. And I want you to know as we go forward in the weeks to come, but because I want to give you some tools. I want to give you what you need, I think, to the truth to believe, but the actions to take to know how to address these things. But I want you to know that in Jesus Christ, there is an answer and there's hope. There's a new beginning for you. There's redemption there. That Jesus, the Bible says God, God is his man, two verses. One, man was born for trouble as sparks fly upward. In other words, it's inevitable that trouble will enter into your life in some form or another. But in another place it says, but our God is a God of deliverances. And with our God are the escapes from death. So you got to know those two things, right? You don't have a realistic view of life if you don't know both those things. Trouble's coming and it's going to be tough sometimes. Sparks fly upward, trouble comes to people. But God is a God who looks at your trouble and goes, I'm going to save him. I'm going to save her. I'm going to save them from that. I'm gonna, and salvation for God is a pulling out. I'm going to pull you out of that and set you in a safe place. And with our God are the escapes from death. It's not, this is the devil's lie. There's no hope. It's going downhill. It's so fast. It's cascading out of control. Just abandon ship, abandon ship. That's the devil's lie. There is no hope. This is leading to death. But the Bible says God watches people plunging toward death and he snatches them out of it. Which is what it means to say, I have a savior in Jesus Christ, my Lord. He saved me. I was spiraling toward death itself and he snatched me out and set my feet on a firm place. So will we let God shed his light on our chaos? we let God banish Satan from our lives forever? And will we let him speak his peace into our families? Let's put his hearts before the Lord and worship him.